Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, before we get started in our continuing series here in 1 Kings 8, let's uh, bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself in many different ways and through many different people, different formats of literature down through the ages. You have revealed yourself in this way so that we are challenged to think and study, reflect upon your word so that we can understand the key principles that are there, that we can understand who you are, how you interface with your creatures. We can understand all of the different aspects of our spiritual life as we study and learn the doctrines that are explained in the New Testament. We see them exemplified through the lives of the Old Testament saints. Now, fathers, we study this prayer of Solomon's. We pray that you would help us to understand it, see the principles that are there that we can take and apply in our own spiritual life and in our own prayer life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings chapter 8, which is a chapter that deals with the dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayer of dedication. What's interesting is the way in which this prayer of Solomon's develops. You would think that in a prayer of dedication, at least in terms of the way uh, building dedication prayers normally uh, work out in American evangelicalism and American church life, that uh, the prayer would be focused more on how this particular building is going to be used to manifest uh, the glory of God or what great things are going to be done in this building or how uh, this building fits within the plan of God for, for Israel. And that's not what this prayer is about. If you read this prayer, there is one word that shows up. There's Actually, there's two or three words that show up quite frequently. But there is one word that shows up several times that tells us what the key request is in this prayer. For this is an intercessory prayer, as we'll see in our study of the different words for prayer in this passage. But it is primarily a prayer 
for God's forgiveness of Israel when, in the distant future, they have been under the uh, discipline of God, scattered among the nations, and they finally, eventually, turn to God and turn from their disobedient ways and turn to Him with a full heart and seek forgiveness. And it is a prayer that God would grant them that forgiveness and return them to the land that God has promised Israel. That's the thrust of this, this entire prayer all the way down through the end of the prayer in verse, verse 61. It is, uh, if you characterize it with one word or one concept, it is a prayer for forgiveness. That aspect of, <clears throat> of forgiveness is first introduced in what we might call the introductory phase or the summary phase of the prayer which is covered in verses 18 or excuse me verses 22 down through 30 we have spent um, the last two or three lessons going through the first part of this prayer and we're down to about verse i think verse verse 28 in verse 22 we read that Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord the this is the uh, altar for burnt offerings outside of the entry to the temple in the presence of all the nation everybody's assembled there and he prays to God he takes up a posture where he kneels he spreads his hands out before God and he has built we see from the parallel passage in second chronicles he's built a, a platform that elevates him about three three and a half feet above uh, the ground so that everyone is able to have a visual and everyone is able to see him. In verse 23 we read that he begins his prayer addressing it to God, focusing on the name of God that brings to bear God's covenant relationship with Israel. He is Yahweh Elohim of Israel. There is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. did an in-depth study of this phrase, no God like you, showing that it is a phrase that is used in other contexts that are related to God's covenant. It's used by Moses in, and in contexts related to the giving of the Mosaic covenant. It's used by David in contexts related to the giving of the Davidic covenant. So it emphasizes the uniqueness of God. He, there is no God like you, he says, who keep covenants. He goes right into that covenant aspect, who keep covenant and loving kindness, chesed, faithful, loyal love with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And the emphasis here is on the uniqueness of God, that he is a covenant-keeping God. And then we come to verse 28 in the prayer, and he, this is where uh, Solomon moves into uh, an intercessory aspect of the prayer. Uh, verse 26, he said, just to give us a little context, he, he, verse 25 and 26, he relates his prayer to the promise, to the fact that God has pro made a certain promises to David. He made key promises to David and fulfilled them. So that becomes the way he's structuring this argument. He's saying, God, you made specific promises to David. You fulfilled them literally. We see that because now I stand before this temple that you said, told, you promised David, my father, that his son would build. Just as you fulfilled that promise, so I am going to pray that you will fulfill these other promises that you made 
in the Old Testament. That is his rationale. That's the basis for how he is arguing. And I use that in sort of a legal sense, not argument in the sense of a disagreement, but in the sense of presenting a case or rationale for why God should answer his prayer. So he's moving from fulfilled promise to future fulfillment of other promises. So he uh, structures his prayer in verse 28. He says, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. And what we see here is an introduction of several words that are used throughout this chapter for prayer. In fact, there's two chapters in the Old Testament that utilize these words for prayer and utilizes a couple of these words for prayer more than any other single context in the Old Testament. And you find First Kings 8 and then the um, a comparable passage over in Second uh, Chronicles are the two passages in Second Chronicles chapter, I think it's in chapter 6. These are the two passages that use these words over and over again uh, for prayer. And it's the same event. It's the same prayer. So what we find is that this is one of the primary examples for prayer in the, in the Old Testament. So the first word that we find, he says, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. Actually, it sounds in the English translation as if regard is a request. But it is linked to the verb listen. And what you have in the, in the Hebrew is a request to turn to listen, so that the finite verb is the verb turn, which is translated regard, and he's calling upon God as if he were to turn his face, to turn around and listen to this. So it's an anthropomorphic expression, and uh, an anthropomorphism is a figure of speech whereby a, f- a feature of human form, hands, eyes, nose, are ascribed to God. He doesn't actually possess those physical features, but they're used to communicate certain things about God and so that we can understand some things about him from a, a point of common language. So the, the word there is panan. It simply means to turn your face or face around or um, give, your, give your face to something, to look at something, and the idea there in conjunction with an infinitive verb to listen is to, he's saying, God, turn, and, turn to listen. So that exp- the verb to listen expresses the purpose for the request uh, to turn. And he says, uh, and this picks up the, uh, uh, panah there picks up the imperatival sense from the verb that is found back in uh, verse 26, where he says, let your word uh, come true. That is an imperative, uh, an imperative of request. You have imperatives of command, and then you, which is when a superior commands an inferior, that is in terms of authority, to do something. Like a drill sergeant commanding a recruit to do something, or a boss telling 
an employee to do something. It is a command of someone in authority to someone who is under their authority. This is a different kind of imperative. It's an imperative of request. And you find uh, prayers filled with imperatives. But they're not um, dictating to God. See, this is a problem you have in certain kinds of uh, word of faith theologies today that we are to command God because that shows our faith. And that just isn't what the emphasis of these imperatives, and that shows what happens when somebody doesn't doesn't understand the language. I remember one of the first time I was teaching a class at, back then. It was um, Houston Bible Institute. Now it's College of Biblical Studies. This was back in about 85, and a lady came to my class. And during the break, she came up to me and she said, I'm not sure I agree with you. I think God is like a Coke machine. If you do... If you put in a quarter, you're going to get a Coke. Or put in 50 cents, you're going to get a Coke. You, you do certain things, and then God is compelled to respond in certain ways. And I said, you know, that's, that's not what the Bible says. You have a machine for a God. She didn't come back after the break. But that's how the health and wealth gospel works, is if you do X action, you name it and claim it. I claim it by faith as views like a c- command to God. And that's what, where they'll get this is by uh, a wrong understanding of these imperatives in prayers. They are not imperatives of command. They are imperatives of request. And so this is the request to, to God to, uh, we would say, please turn your face for the purpose of listening to the prayer and to the supplication of your, of your servant. And this first word that's translated prayer is the Hebrew word tefillah. And it's a very interesting word. It's found uh, 76 times in um, the New Testament. I mean, excuse me, the Old Testament. It's the most common word for prayer. It's the noun form. The cognate uh, verb is uh, palal. And palal is used uh, about 84 times in the Old Testament to describe the action of praying. That's the verb form, palal, and this is the, the noun form, found 76 times. It has the idea of expressing a plea. It's a, it's a, it's a word that has a, a strong emotional overtones to it. It is somebody who is pleading with God to act in a certain way. And this noun is used six times in our passage in 1 Kings 8.28, 8.29, 8.38, 8.45, 8.49, and 8.54. It is used as well as over in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. It's used a number of different times. So it tells us that this is a key word. And these, there, like I said, it, as we began, there are four words used for prayer in this section, and they're not just used synonymously. They they express different ideas in prayer. They're not just used interchangeably for making a request for God, but they bring out a different uh, different nuances. Uh, so Solomon prays, yet regard the prayer. So this is a plea, and it is ultimately a plea for God's grace to Israel despite their failure. 
regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. And this is the Hebrew word tehina. And tehina, if you look at that, as that is spelled there, you can see that the center of that word is made up of H-I-N. And this comes from the uh, Hebrew word hanaf, which is a, a verb for to be gracious. It's related to the cognate noun, which means grace. And so the idea of supplication is that it is an appeal to the grace of God to act in a certain way. So you have two words now. You have the word prayer, which emphasizes a you're pleading with God for something, and the idea of supplication, that you're appealing to His grace, a recognition that man is not deserving of anything from God. Uh, there's nothing about man or salvation or God that mandated that God provide salvation. God would have been perfectly just to have instantly vaporized Adam and Eve at the instant that they sinned. But because of God's love for his creatures, because of the framework of the angelic conflict and what he was doing, because of his desire to demonstrate grace to undeserving creatures, God had a plan of salvation to deal with the uh, resulting problem of, of sin. But there's nothing in God's character that mandated that he do that. He would have been perfectly just ending everything right there. And that perhaps gives you a little better understanding of what grace is. Grace is undeserving. If Adam deserved God to give him a plan of salvation, then grace wouldn't be grace. So there's nothing about us, there's nothing about God's character that demands that God provide salvation. He does it freely of his own love. So that uh, that means that supplication then is an appeal to God to be gracious and to answer a request from those who are undeserving. He says, regard the prayer of your servant and his uh, appeal to your grace, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer. Notice you have cry and prayer again, which your servant is praying before you today. So this word for cry is used only one time in the context. It's the Hebrew word rina, and it indicates a shout of joy or a moan of agony. It's got a broad semantic range. And so the context tells you something about it. So it is, it is a cry to God. And so this prayer is uh, characterized here as a plea, as an appeal to God's grace, and as a, a, someone crying out for God to act in a certain way. It is used this way in uh, several passages related to prayer. Uh, Jeremiah 7.16 is another one. As I said, it's only used one time here in 1 Kings 8. So we come back to verse 28. Yet regard the prayer of your servant as supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer. This is uh, the same word we've already seen. This is the noun form, uh, tefillah, uh, which means simply prayer or a plea. And then the second word, which your servant is praying, this picks up the verbal aspect. This is the word, the verb palal, 
It's a Hithpael participle. It's 80 of the 84 times that it shows up, it's a Hithpael. And the reason that's significant, is, I think, is it just uh, emphasizes the word. Hithpael often is reflexive. It's not a reflexive thing here at all. There are several meanings. I think it just is a, as a, an idiomatic expression. It's used only four times in other stems, so it's primarily this is just the way the word, the word works. And it means to pray and it means to intercede. And as you go through a, as you go through time, you know, I introduced a new word not long ago, diachronic. As you go through time, and that's called doing a diachronic study of a word, and you look at how words used early, perhaps Genesis in the Mosaic literature, and then you see how words used later on after the exile, perhaps Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, and then you have a word may pick up different nuances in the intertestamental period, and you study how it's used in rabbinical uh, literature, and then how it's translated in the Septuagint used, what kind of Greek words are used, and then on into the New Testament period. It gives you an idea of the fact that just because Moses uses a word one way doesn't mean Malachi or Haggai or uh, Nehemiah are going to use the word the same way because Moses writes in 1400 and they write a thousand years later. And Hebrew is just like any other language. It's going to manifest certain changes uh, through time. So you have to study words in terms of their their usage through time. But when you do that, you can discover some interesting things. For example, the word palal picks up more and more of a judicial context and a judicial overtone as it goes through time. And by the time you get into the intertestamental period, it is almost always, almost exclusively used in judicial contexts. And so what this tells us is that the concept of intercession with God is uh, has a certain nuance that's related to an appeal to the judge of the universe. It's related to an appeal to his righteousness and his justice that God act justly towards man and that he do that in terms of his own word. And that's exactly what we're seeing in, in uh, this prayer of Solomon's is that he's calling upon God to forgive the people, that in his justice he can... He can forgive them, and he forgives them because his justice has been satisfied by the by the propitiatory work of the Messiah, who will come in, come in the future. So we have the idea that prayer is a plea. We have the second word that we saw has the idea it's an appeal to God's grace, and then this word picks up the idea that it is. Uh, it's located within the context of a, an appeal to the Supreme Court of Heaven because His justice has been satisfied. And when we think about forgiveness, what's the characteristic of God that's at stake here? It's His righteousness. And out of His righteousness, He forgives us because His righteousness and His justice have been satisfied by the uh, work of Christ on the cross, who is the propitiation toward God for all mankind. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation has the idea of satisfaction. And it's the satisfaction, or some places, some writers use the words appeasement. I don't like that word. 
Uh, it's the satisfaction of God's justice. And his justice was completely satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. And the Greek word that is used there for uh, propitiation in the New Testament is the same word that is used to describe the mercy seat in the Old Testament, the, the, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the, the blood of the lamb that was without spot or blemish, the, the sacrificial lamb that was uh, slaughtered every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, place that blood on the Ark of the Covenant. The two cherubs, and cherubs are always associated with God's justice, His righteousness. They uh, look down and they are satisfied by the blood of the atonement. And that word atonement is also tied in with this. And we're going to see this in our, our study of these, these concepts and the concept of forgiveness. And it, it gets carried over into the New Testament, and we often talk about the importance of confession before class. We have to keep short accounts of our sin. And when we confess our sin, in essence what we're doing is we are rehearsing the fact that this sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ, that God's justice was satisfied by that, and so that this sin, therefore, does not stand between ourselves and God because it's already been paid for on, on the cross. And so to understand that whole concept of forgiveness, we need to have some of this brought out in the Old Testament. So the idea of prayer is uh, at its very core is related to appeals to God's grace and appeals to God's uh, justice. So we go to verse 29, and Solomon says that your eyes, does God have eyes? No, here we have another anthropomorphic statement relating to God's knowledge. Eyes always relate to knowledge. The eyes of God go to and fro across the earth seeking uh, someone who is whose heart is completely dedicated to him. And his eyes indicate his knowledge that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night. And this has the idea, this idiom has the idea that God would look with favor upon the temple and the people of God. That your eyes may be open toward this temple that you wouldn't close off, ignore, uh, which would be a lack of knowledge. That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said. See, now he reminds God of what he said. He doesn't notice, for those of you who haven't caught this from my teaching, he doesn't quote or he doesn't state a principle. He doesn't say, uh, remember this doctrinal principle? He quotes what God said. He says, toward this place of which you said, my name shall be there. Now what Solomon is doing in this interesting structure is he has, first of all, reminded God that he promised David that David's son would build a house to God. And that's exactly what has been fulfilled. Solomon, David's son, has built the temple and is now dedicating it. And in this dedicatory prayer, he is reminding God that God's very character is at stake. Whenever we read references to God's name or the name of God, 
there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That whole concept of name isn't just a nomenclature. It just isn't a uh, sort of a, a verbal tag that we put on something. It has to do with the essence of the individual or his character. And so when God says, my name shall be there, his, it, it, he is alluding to the fact that God's character is going to be manifest and glorified by his presence in the temple and the way in which uh, he is honored in, in the temple. So Solomon is reminding him that character, that God's character is what is at stake in all of this. And you often find this kind of rationale in the prayers of David. You find it in the prayers of Solomon. You find it in the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. God, you promised to do X, Y, or Z. Your character is at stake here, so now you need to fulfill your promise. And we think, well, that may, may sound a little bit uh, presumptuous, but this is what they're doing. They're appealing to God on the basis of his character to perform in a certain manner. So Solomon is reminding God of the significance of his character. He says, this is the place of which you said my name shall be there. And on that basis that you may hear the prayer, and here we have the word uh, palal again, uh, hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. So again, it is a uh, call upon God to act in a certain way in terms of his justice. And so in First uh, Kings 8.30 goes on to say, And may you hear the supplication of your servant. And the idea of hearing isn't just having your you know, auditory nerve stimulated, even anthropomorphically, but responding positively to the request. And may you hear the supplication of your servant. And once again, we have the Hebrew word for prayer, uh, for supplication, appeal to grace. May you hear the supplication of your servant. Now, what I want you to notice here, we talked about those four words for prayer, and throughout the rest of this prayer, we're going to see how they are uh, woven into the fabric of the prayer. It says, may you hear the supplication. So earlier he says in, um, in verse 29, hear the prayer, the palal, which your uh, servant makes toward this place, using it, he uses it verbally. And then we come to verse 30, uh, that you will uh, listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. So he is putting himself as the king as the intercessor uh, representing the nation. Now, the same th- kind of thing happens some centuries later with Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel will pray a prayer of confession, seeking forgiveness for the nation at the end of their seven, toward the end of their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And Daniel has added up the years, recognizes that the time's about up. And so in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 19, he uses the same word for forgive, and he calls upon God to forgive the people of their, of their sins. So you may listen to the uh, supplication, the plea, the appeal for grace of your servant, of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place. And this is, again, the use of 
of uh, the participial form of, of palal. I just want you to see again and again and again you have these same words. When they pray toward this place, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That is what this whole prayer has been driving to, is to this final request to God to forgive. And this is this is His purpose for this entire prayer, is that God would listen to this prayer and just as he promised in the old in, in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 29 and 30, that when the people are scattered out of the land, that when they turn to God, that God would listen to their prayer and return them to the land. He's claiming a he's claiming a promise. Now we usually don't think of a promise that way because the promise is that if you disobey me, I'm going to take you out of the land. And when you are out of the land, when you turn to me. I will bring you back into the land. So there's a promise of restoration of the people uh, to, the, to the land. And this is what Solomon is focusing on. He's not focusing on what's happening right now in 960 B.C. He's focusing on the fact that even though we are at this glorious moment, we've built this temple, we are at the apex of our spiritual life as a nation I'm not focusing on this because I know that this nation is going to fail. Because of their failure, you're going to discipline us and drive us out of the nation and out of the land, and I pray that you will restore us. So Solomon's focus is on God's ultimate restoration of the people when his presence will be permanently uh, with Israel, which will not occur until, until the kingdom. And we see a similar type of prayer in uh, Micah 7:18, and Micah writes uh, about the seventh century BC, and he says, "Who is God like you?" Once again, there's our terminology. We saw this uniqueness of God emphasized in the Mosaic Covenant, emphasized again in the Davidic Covenant. There is no God comparable uh, to you. God is in- incomparable. God is unique. There is nothing similar to God. Who is like you? And the point of comparison in Micah 7, 8 is that God is the one who pardons or forgives iniquity. That word for pardon is the same word that we have in 1 Kings 8, 30. It's that Hebrew word, salah. And I'll talk a lot about that in just a minute. So pardon is the same word, same idea, means to forgive iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. In other words, God is going to uh, forgive all of their national sin, their idolatry, their rejection of the Messiah. God, in his grace, will completely forgive and forget all of their past, all of their past sins and failures and will not retain his anger forever, and he delights in mercy, and he will restore the nation uh, to the land just as he promised. Now we look at this word that we find here in 1 Kings 8.30, which is the verb salah. This is an interesting word. It's used 47 times in the Old Testament, and it's a word that is... um, 
fits in a specific category of actions in the Old Testament that only God can perform. It's just like the Hebrew verb bara that's used in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Human beings are never the subject of bara. No human being can bara anything. It is an action that is unique to God. The same thing with salah. No human being ever uh, salahs anybody. It is a verb that is used in the Old Testament with only God as the subject. So it is not just talking about the kind of forgiveness that may exist between one human and another. It is talking about that ultimate and total eternal forgiveness that can only come, uh, come from God. And it has the idea of being forgiven, sometimes to pardon, to spare. The subject is always God. It's first used in Exodus chapter 34, verse 9. We'll go back and look at a couple of these examples as we study this, because forgiveness is one of those ideas and one of those doctrines that so many people just don't understand. It is difficult to forgive somebody. And we go through life harboring bitterness and resentment and anger towards people rather than forgiving them. And we have to understand what the basis for forgiveness is. And on another example today is you get people who confuse the idea of forgiveness with the enactment of justice. That if somebody comes along and kills somebody, murders somebody near and dear to me, I, as a believer, am supposed to forgive them. And part of that forgiveness would also involve making sure that the right legal procedures take place to make sure that that individual, without me entering into resentment, revenge motivation, vindictiveness, or anything else, but that justice be done and that that person uh, be executed according to the laws of the land and according to the principles of Scripture. And see, we live in a world today that has confused justice with vengeance. And justice is not vengeance. It's not about me getting, you know, something done to satisfy the fact that I've lost someone near and dear to me. And whenever there's a uh, situation of capital punishment up at Huntsville or any of the other, any other states around, you always see all the people out front marching around with their anti-death penalty signs. Then you see the other crowd with their pro-death penalty signs. And usually they're both arguing from totally fallacious uh, bases. They're arguing from vengeance on the one hand, and they're arguing from this idea that everybody's improvable and everybody's basically good, and so we should never all, whenever you take the life of anybody, it's murder. And so you, you, uh, capital punishment is then viewed as murder. And they're just as irrational and wrong as the people who think that capital punishment has to do with personal vengeance. And what happens is if you love someone, they're very close to you, and somebody takes their life, then the sin nature reaction is that you want vengeance and you want to have something happen that is somehow going to lessen the emotional pain and misery in your own soul. But nothing can do that except for your own volition, and you have to forgive that person just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Because, frankly, the sins that you commit and the sins that I commit 
when compared to the righteousness of God, are no better than the sin of murder that this uh, homicidal maniac just committed. And so we are uh, the worst hypocrites possible if we think that, uh, that in capital punishment somehow uh, we let a personal vengeance enter into our thinking. We have a desire for justice because we understand the Scriptures, and the Scripture says that anybody who commits certain crimes has uh, given up the right to continue life. They have forfeited their right to life, and their life should be taken according to the principles of law. But judicial punishment and the pardoning of a, of a penalty has nothing to do with personal forgiveness. These are two totally different concepts. So we can forgive somebody completely on the one hand, and on the other hand, be totally within our, uh, maintain complete fellowship with God, and do everything possible to make sure that justice is equitably enacted and that person is executed. And those are not contradictory concepts. They're only contradictory if you operate on human viewpoint, ideas of justice and love, and you haven't spent any time uh, really studying the word. So this concept of salah is a key concept to understand what forgiveness is all about and how God forgives. And God forgives in a way that is completely different from the way we forgive. We often forgive, and then two days later we think about it, or two minutes later we think about it, and then we haven't forgiven anybody. We're mad all over again, and they have to somehow make restitution. And we only have to tell God once that we did something and we're forgiven. Let's go back to the first incident where we have this word in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Just think how many things... How many doctrines in the Bible find their uh, basis for their first development in the events surrounding the Exodus? Exodus 34, verse 9. In Exodus 34, what we have is the problem of the golden calf incident. While Moses is up on the um, on Mount Sinai receiving the law, the people become impatient, and they uh, they get um, they get Aaron to create this golden calf, and he says, "This golden calf is the God that brought you up out of out of Sinai." And so after that, God threatens to uh, destroy, uh, destroy all of the Israelites. And in verse 9, Moses has um, interceded for the people. Notice verse 8 says, So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, So what kind of worship is this? It's individual worship and it's prayer of intercession. So when we're involved, as we were earlier in prayer meeting, in intercessory prayer for others, that is one form of worship. And Moses says, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon, that's the word forgive, salah, 
pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And the result is that God forgives the people. He cuts a new, uh, cuts, cuts a new Ten Commandments and he, he forgives them. And you have another example in Numbers 14, 19 through 20 at Kadesh Barnea. Even though the people have uh, disobeyed him and the twelve spies have gone into the land, ten of them didn't understand their mission was to uh, just to check out everything on a recon mission. They thought their, their mission was to find out if they could defeat the Canaanites. So by misinterpreting God's command, they misapplied it and brought the nation into uh, 40 years of discipline. And after they come out of the land, come back, and there's 10 spies that say that we, um, that we can't do it, then there are two that say we can do it. But the people uh, refuse to follow Joshua and Caleb, and so God is going to bring a judgment upon them. And we go to Numbers 14, 19 through 20. Moses intercedes for the people again, and in verse 19 he says, Pardon or forgive the iniquity of these people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So Moses says there has been one sin following another, one act of disobedience following another act of disobedience, following another act of complaining and self-absorption and everything else. And God has constantly forgiven the people up to this point, and he prays that God will forgive them. And so God's response is in verse 20. He says, I have pardoned according to your word. God has forgiven them. Do they get to go into the land? No. See, forgiveness doesn't mean the consequences are removed. In some cases, they are. For example, in the case of David, David committed adultery, then he, which was a capital crime. Then he uh, then he conspired with Joab to have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed, put in the place of where the hottest part of the combat would be so that he would more than likely be killed. And then he conspired to cover it up. So he was guilty of a capital crime and according to the letter of the law should have been executed. But God, who is the only authority over the king of Israel, commuted the sentence. That shows that sentences can be commuted in grace by the proper authority. And that is valid. And God commuted the sentence. There was discipline, though, on David, there was a fourfold discipline on him, including the death of the child, and the later there's the incest with uh, 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 his daughter Tamar, and I forget the brother's name, and then there's the rebellion with uh, Absalom, and all of these things happened as a result of and his discipline on David, so that he's forgiven but he still has to go through the consequences. And sometimes when we confess our sins, God, in his grace, not only forgives us, but he removes the consequences. And all of us have experienced that. We have not gone through nearly 10% or 1% of what we deserve as consequences from our sin. And that's part of God's grace. 
And in other cases, God has us go through the consequences, but he's forgiven us. And because we're back in fellowship, we can apply God's word to those uh, circumstances of discipline, and we can turn cursing into blessing, and we can grow and mature in the midst of that, that discipline. And that's what happens here, they, except they don't grow and mature. They don't convert. The Exodus generation didn't convert it into an opportunity to grow. They continued uh, to be rebellious. And so God indicates that he is going to take them um, through uh, 40 years of discipline, and none of the adults, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, would be allowed to enter into the land. So... Uh, these two examples in the Old Testament give us a picture of what forgiveness is in the Old Testament. Another passage, series of passages that we see are in the Levitical, uh, deal with the Levitical offerings. Uh, the first chapter, actually there's two chapters, Leviticus chapter 4 and Leviticus chapter 5, both contain various uses of this word, salah, for forgiveness. And they're related to the sin offering, specifically in Leviticus chapter 4. So turn back with me from Numbers back to the preceding book in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 4. And I just want to point out a couple of interesting things going on in the text that you don't really pick up on unless you uh, investigate the original languages just a little bit. The first use of forgiveness is in uh, 4.20. And there we read, He shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest, watch the connection here. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Now, the point that I want you to watch is there are several examples here, four different examples of situations where it's necessary to bring a sin offering or a different kind of offering, burnt offering, to God. And in each of these cases, at the end, it's going to make the comment, the text makes the comment that the priest makes atonement and God forgave them. Connection. What are the two words that are associated there? Atonement and Forgiveness. Now, the interesting thing is we have a tendency to think of atonement as related to salvation. We tend to, when we hear that word atonement, we think of what Christ did on the cross, and what we're focusing on is phase one salvation, justification salvation. But if you look at these passages, God is talking to them as believers. This is how they recover fellowship. The idea here isn't related to becoming saved in terms of the work of Christ on the cross related to solving the sin problem. It's related to the ongoing application of that to post-salvation sin. In other words, it is an Old Testament picture of what we do every time we confess our sins when we uh, come to God in prayer. And there are various examples that are given in uh, the fourth chapter here about different sins that the people uh, may com commit. We can go back as, as far as verse 2, and we, can, we read that 
Uh, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, for example, if the anointed priest sins. So this is the first example, is if the priest sins, if the high priest sins. And it brings guilt on the people. So he is sinning in his role as the representative uh, priest of the people. Then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. Now the priest is pictured as already consecrated and saved. That's the picture. We all know that as priests do not have to necessarily be saved to serve as the priest, but that's the typology. That's the picture. Now I want you to remember this because this I'm going to connect the dots on this on in our Hebrew study on Thursday night. We have four sets of words, two two pairs of words that are often used in the Old Testament law. One word is holy, and another word is profane. Now, that's we don't normally use the word profane in this sense in our everyday language anymore, but what that means is common. And it's emphasizing the distinction between the priests who are set apart to the service of God, they're holy, and the everyday people. The people of the land is literally the term that's used, the everyday a person in Israel who is not ceremonially set apart to the service of God. So you're either holy, set apart to the service of God as a priest, or you're common. So we're all just common because we're not set apart to the service of God. Then you have another set of words, clean and unclean. And clean has to do with whether or not you are ceremonially clean and you can come into the temple and you can offer sacrifices. If you commit certain sins or if you do certain ceremonially or ritually defiling acts, you touch a dead body, a woman gives birth, a number of things like that, they became ceremonially unclean and they have to bring a sacrifice so that they can be become clean. So you can be holy and unclean. Think about that. This is really going to pay off Thursday night. You can be holy, set apart to God. That's like positional sanctification. But you sin, so you're ceremonially unclean. So you have to be cleansed so that you can become clean and and carry out your worship as a positionally sanctified priest. Or you can be a common person, a non-consecrated person, unholy. Well, you didn't think of it that way, did you? Unholy and clean. If you're just an everyday person, like let's say uh, Jesse, David's father, and you come into the temple, you are not holy because you're not set apart like a priest, but you are ceremonially clean, or you may be ceremonially unclean. So these are two different concepts. Holiness and clean are not synonymous. And unholy or profane and unclean are not synonymous. Holy has the idea of set apart to the Lord. Clean and unclean has to do with whether or not you are ritually purified in order to fulfill uh, fulfill your service. And so when you commit sin... Uh, you commit an act that renders you ceremonially unclean, there has to be 
uh, some sacrifice and forgiveness, and that's where you see this the use of this of this particular uh, term as a result of these various various sacrifices. Now, if you skip down, let's just skip down to um, what happens if the whole congregation sins unintentionally. Verse thirteen: If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, that is the sin literally in the Hebrew, not just the thing, but the sin, is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done uh, something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. When the sin which they have sinned, literally, it doesn't say the sin which they've committed, it's the sin which they have sinned, becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin. So this is a corporate cleansing. A young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. So as the elders representing the whole nation put their hands on the bull, indicating an identification and a transfer of their sin to the bull, and then the bull is slaughtered. Pay attention to the detail. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord, before the altar. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. So it goes into the holy place, and he shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord. That's for the whole nation. He doesn't do this seven times sprinkling for other things, just when it's this this one particular type of sin. He sprinkles it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He doesn't go into the Holy of Holies because it's not the Day of Atonement. He's outside the veil in the holy place. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the, before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle uh, of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. So he puts uh, some on the altar uh, and then pours the rest at the base. And he shall take all the fat from it and take, takes all the rest of it and he burns it in a burnt offering. And then when it's all done, he, we read in verse 22, that the, or in verse 20, the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. Now this word atonement, let me say something about the word atonement. The Hebrew word is kafar. And for a long time, people thought, and scholars thought, that Kafar had the idea of covering, and it was almost always thought of as the, the, the as a picture of the atoning work of Christ, sort of phase one justification, the payment for sin. What's interesting is that in a number of passages in the Septuagint, it's translated with the Greek word uh, katharizo, which means to be cleansed, not to cover. And a lot of recent scholarship, and recent, based on recent discoveries of other other uh, manuscripts, this, the, the idea of kafar is more closely related to cleansing. Now, the, in this passage, when the translators of the Septuagint translated kafar into Greek, they translated it with the Greek word holoskomai, which is the word for mercy seat. And it's a word for propitiation. And so these ideas are all interconnected. And what we see here in the imagery is the same imagery we have when we confess our sins. We are, in essence, saying, God, I lied. 
That lie was paid for by Christ on the cross. Your justice was satisfied by that payment. And on the basis of that satisfaction, uh, you have said you will forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. We kind of go through the shortcut and just uh, uh, acknowledge or admit our sins. But that's the, the framework for confession is we are going back to the cross where God's justice was satisfied and that is being applied. Was And that's why in 1 John 1, 7 it says the blood of Christ continually cleanses for, from all sin. It's not that you are we are continuously experientially cleansed, but that the blood of Christ is sufficient to, to cover all sin. It paid for all sin. And experientially we have to admit or acknowledge our sins for uh, forgiveness uh, to take place in, in, in time. So all the way through Leviticus 4 and on into Leviticus 5, you have example after example after example where there's a sacrifice, the priest makes atonement, and it is connected to forgiveness. So the idea here of atonement is closer to the idea of propitiation, and that, that relates to forgiveness because the reason God can forgive us is because his justice and righteousness are satisfied. And that's seen in passages in Numbers 15, 26, and 28 as well. And this is the same idea that you have in Daniel 9, 19, when uh, Daniel calls upon God to forgive their nation. Now, that just starts to scratch the surface on this forgiveness issue, especially with Israel. Because, as I said, this is a key word in this whole prayer of Solomon's. And we're going to understand the significance of it, not only for church-age believers, for us, but also in terms of Israel because of the way it's structured in this prayer. So we'll have to get into that uh, next time. We'll pick up here with a continuation of our study on uh, divine forgiveness as it's exemplified in the Old Testament individually, but also nationally. So that'll bring us into Leviticus 26, 27, and Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we have forgiveness. We have it because Christ paid the penalty for sin, because the penalty is paid, the sacrifice was perfect, your justice is satisfied, a judicial demand was made and met. And so we do not have to satisfy that. The debt is completely forgiven. We can't come back and add anything to it because once it's paid in full, it's paid in full. And so we trust in Christ. We trust in his death. We recognize that's the basis for our uh, ongoing forgiveness of sin. And when we sin, every sin we sin is already covered by Christ and his death on the cross. And by confessing, we are experientially forgiven and restored to fellowship. Father, we thank you for the way we see these promises work, where we see these principles as they're exemplified all the way through Scripture on into the future millennial kingdom, helping us to understand the importance of cleansing from sin as we come into your presence. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.